if we're going to build a great product and we're going to sell it. Why do we need marketing? <laughs> Who needs yeah. marketing? And oh, by the way, <laughs> it's so easy on TikTok and Instagram. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 141 of Rockstar CMO FM. The M is for marketing and the F is the well you decide. As you're probably wondering, does the world need another effing marketing podcast? I'm your host Ian Trusker. I'm no rockstar, but I've picked up a thing or two over the last 20 years on my tour from sysadmin to CMO and on this weekly podcast I chat to the true rockstars, my fabulous guests and chums to share some marketing street knowledge that will hopefully inspire your inner rockstar. Come say hello, we are Rockstar CMO on Twitter and LinkedIn, and we are proud members of the Marketing Podcast Network. I'm recording this on Saturday the 19th of November. I hope you've had a good week, and you are well, safe, and staying as sane as you feel you need to be. In this week's episode, Jeff Clark and I continue to discuss personas. I go backstage with Robert Jordan, founder of Interim Execs, and we wind down the week with Robert Rose for a cocktail and a marketing thought in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar. But first, we need to pay the bar tab. I'll be back in a moment. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. On to our first segment, the marketing studio with Jeff Clark, our resident rock star, CMO advisor, seasoned B2B marketing leader and former Forrester research director. Welcome. Come on into the studio, Ian. It's nice to have you back because we were just we were jamming and we uh, you know we need to actually get down to writing some new tunes. So I thought uh, having uh, you in here will help us. <laughs> I'm glad we're getting this right. Thank you very much. Jeff. So, um, hello, well, welcome back to Rockstar CMO. I think, uh, Jeff. Yes, nice to see you. How are you this week? Uh, very good. We're um, you know it's it's uh we're we're actually getting into what seems to be real winter weather here so we're all bundling up mm-hmm. as you can probably see in the through yeah. the uh, glass in the studio and uh, <laughs> uh preparing we had our first snow of the year this week so um Good Lord. It's all getting very excited yeah. thanksgiving and christmas are coming up shoveling today yeah yeah white thanksgiving is that <laughs> sometimes it is <laughs> Global warming is tending to put a kibosh on it, but yes, sometimes it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're unseasonably warm, but plenty of rain. So it's it's like uh, it's like it's. I guess as we're entering winter, we're still really in a in a in a fall type, a, a UK fall type weather environment. Anyway, uh, last week uh, we'll get to the second agenda item. Thank you very much. That's the weather part. Uh, yeah, what did you want to talk about today? <laughs> oh, the weather's fine, man. Let's just talk about the weather, choose a tune, and 
drift out yeah. of here. That sounds good. Um, last week, we tried to cover personas in 20 minutes, yeah. which was ambitious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're sticking to that topic. And I guess, I don't know, maybe we may end up on this topic for a few weeks, but I think we'll switch next week. Um, but if you, the listener, missed last week, Jeff described seven steps to defining a persona. Uh, I must admit, though, the last two didn't quite get the same focus as the first five. <laughs> I think that's why we always stick to five effing things. Yeah. They fit into 20 yeah. minutes. But Four minutes anyway. a step. Yeah. <laughs> Those steps were start with the organization needs. Number two was their f- figuring out their role in the buying group. Number three was translate those organizational needs to their needs. Number four was where do they fit in the decision-making process? Number five was the challenges and initiatives that relate to their needs. So what are they trying to achieve beyond what we've identified? And six was their functional attributes. Remind me, what are functional attributes? So the functional attributes are where they, um, you know, considering where they sit in an organization. Mm -hmm. uh, No, sorry, actually, you know, well, the job titles, but also... You know, the yeah. firmographic information. So it's like, you know, big, large That's company, right. big, you know, mega company, small company. Yeah. You know, you may have different titles uh, and that fit in right. that function uh, within those different sizes and different types of companies. Right. And then the last thing was figure out their behavioral yeah. attributes, yeah. which is obviously where, the watering holes. Yeah, where they go stuff, for research right? and who do they like to talk to or do they not like to talk to anybody <laughs> or, or whatever, that, <laughs> whatever, their, whatever their characteristics are from a behavioral perspective. Well, let's hope they want to talk to you. Anyway, so we've got the seven, the, the seven steps of the persona. So we de- define the personas and we have our foundation. <laughs> Uh, what do we do next? What is the next step? What do we do with this? Well, the next step, uh, which <laughs> which we'll get into more more steps, the steps that follow <laughs> these steps, is really uh, to to you know widen your lens out and define what your your campaign or your content strategy is, because you need to kind of mm-hmm. shift your focus from the individual persona to to well you know we're, we 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 actually need to do something to drive revenue for the business or drive awareness for the business yeah. so that's going to be in the context of a campaign or a set of content yeah. so really it's like we need to we need to put this stuff in a context so we can make it useful right okay and then you were saying there about individual persona to the campaign and content strategy which sounds like two different things whereas when i tend to create personas I'm very much focused. I have a slight bias towards content marketing. So when I'm thinking about needs and how we solve their needs, I'm always thinking about content, yep. right? But you're saying here that there's there's kind of a campaign versus content strategy, or no. that we need to think about both. No, it's it's um. So it, it, I guess it it depends on on the the perspective you want to take. So uh, mm-hmm. if you're you know if you're a content marketer, you're going to be thinking about the content strategy and the content strategy. Yeah you know, is, you know, outline what are the key business um, and customer needs you're trying to appeal to, to create a detailed plan for how you build content that addresses the individual personas. The campaign, campaign is very much the same thing as kind of a holistic look at both the content and then the engagement or the activation tactics that, Mm -hmm. that again, address the buy needs. So it's, you know, it, it, in many ways, it's, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Because what you're really trying to do is to say, you know, I, I don't just 
develop this information about a persona so we can sit there in a library and somebody can pull it out at some time mm-hmm. to say, oh, you know, <laughs> what, what do we think this person yeah. looks like and what do they do? Yeah. It's like, okay, now that we're, we've developed that work, we're gonna, we got to say, what's marketing going to focus on? And, and our focus right. will tend to be from a campaign or a content perspective, or, you know, again, those could yeah. be unified together because you'd have people that are developing content within the context of your campaign. But it's like we're drive, trying to drive so much revenue for a certain set of solutions. We've got a set of audiences or an audience that we want to focus on from an account and uh, um, perspective. Okay, now let's, mm-hmm. now let's put that plan in place and then use the information we developed about the personas as inputs into that process. Yes. And um, in, um, in, in, yeah. And when we were discussing this, you talk about awareness, demand, engagement. Yep. And enablement. And obviously this is my opportunity to say the thing that I say all the time, which is awareness, revenue (laughs) and trust. Right. But I miss off enablement there, but it, um, so what, what you're doing there is, is, are you now thinking about beyond, so so where, if from a content strategy perspective, you're looking at persona, you're looking at, okay, so I need to be, I need my content to be useful to these needs. I've got to use the word useful, yes. right? That's, that's, um, that, that's, a, that's the law of content marketing, right? You've got to say <laughs> <laughs> so useful content, right? Yeah. So I'm going to create useful content against their needs, but, you're set, but we also need to look at the campaign, which is the way we're going to orchestrate them through the journey, as yeah. well, right? And when this content needs to be played yeah, in. And, right? and, okay. and certainly the philosophy that, that I came from about campaigning is that, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a broad, holistic look and like you have awareness you know, revenue and trust. It's like you're, you're, you're building brand, you're building demand, you're building, uh, you're engaging and trying to build trust with the people you're engaging. And you're the other thing that, that we often are in our, in my past life that we'd always throw in is enablement. So you gotta, Mm -hmm. in addition to what we do as marketers, uh, who are developing these campaigns and content is that we have to make sure that everybody else in marketing and in sales and in maybe other parts Mm -hmm. of the organization are leveraging this information so they understand the customer and what we're trying nice. to do to uh, derive revenue from that customer. That is so critical. And also, I like uh, like your reference, the fact that these personas get built to, with a great fanfare and investment and time. Yes. And then, like you say, they, they, they then live on flip charts or in PowerPoints that get buried in the... Yeah. In the in the bottom yeah, in the, in the yeah. marketing's bottom drawer. Yes, we spend all that time at the on, yeah right? uh, in the yeah. you know working on the whiteboard or at the flip chart, and we developed it. We yeah, captured yeah. all this information. Okay. Yeah, and it just died. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, but I, but also, I think your fourth point there when we were talking about I, I translated it to awareness, revenue, and trust. But you, this enablement piece is probably the piece that we so often miss, right? Yeah. As B two B marketers, we're so busy chasing off to go um, get um, drive demand, basically, yeah. right? Drive demand through these things that we actually forget. We've got to bring the rest of the organization. Absolutely. Onwards. I mean, it is, it is yeah, the thing yeah. is, is when I was working with, with clients on campaign development, um, you know, which was the perspective I was typically coming from, it's like the, yeah. the thing that is like missing the most. I mean, the, the one thing that was always missing is that, you know, there is an element of building awareness in addition to trying to drive demand. Uh, and in some cases, yeah. you, you're going after a market where building awareness is more important, at least at this mm. 
point mm-hmm. than building demand. Yeah. But the thing that was typically would be not on people's radar screens or marketers' radar screens was enablement. It's like, you know, if you're going to be mm. communicating to, <laughs> I have to admit, I probably was guilty of this in before, you know, you're communicating to <laughs> the customer or the prospects yeah. and you haven't yeah. informed sales you know, what you're communicating, yeah. why you're communicating, yeah. what their role is in communicating, you know, because from anything, yeah. any engagement typically has to have a follow-up. I mean, unless you're, you know, yeah. going direct to e-commerce model, you know, there's there's follow-up that, that that the, you know, people that are doing the, the heavy lifting of engaging with the customers personally, I mean, all the information you've developed for the campaign should be helping them as well. It should not be looked at as a, as a kind of a separate discrete uh, function absolutely and they should they should also agree with these personas as well absolutely they? they should be able to recognize them. I mean if, if this stuff was created in a marketing bubble then you've missed something because sales are going to give you so much input into no 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 the buying group doesn't look like that or no that person is not the most important or yeah. whatever it is i mean i've just yeah absolutely so i've done some some work similar and it's really important to bring in sales into that process um, so they should start getting some enablement just simply because you've involved them in those first seven steps. Right? Absolutely. And then, uh, so then what do we do? How do we then develop these this, these campaigns and these strategies? Where where do we use personas? What happens next? Sure. And and, and so I, I kind of outlined, again, the five steps that are after the seven steps. So, <laughs> Yay, so, five so steps. in order to make sure we don't, we don't go over on this and to, and to give the last step a yeah. uh, short shift, is is uh, you know we can kind of march through these kind of quickly and then and then expand on this uh, mm-hmm. in future podcasts. But the first thing is you got to select you know the audience that you're focused on. So in the, in the in the right. for, again from the I'll speak mostly from the campaign perspective. It's like okay we're going to drive mm-hmm. X amount of revenue or improve customer satisfaction or do something to a certain audience. And that, of course that audience can be you know I mean it could be like the same type of buyer for the same type of solution across different industries so you gotta you gotta kind of you know go through the um prioritizing you know what segments and you know what audiences that marketing is going to focus on you know if you're like selling i mean last week we talked about cdps you know content uh data platforms and or contact data platforms and so it's like okay they're they're marketing buyers that could focus on it there's sales buyers there's analytics buyers there's You know, in large companies, there's going to be, you know, different teams. You know, I remember when we were talking to SAP about doing, um, uh, you know, the type of marketing that was very influenced by by looking at the data. And it's like they had a whole team that did nothing but analyze information um, from a data, you know, their version of a contact data platform to to provide insights for marketers and to sales. And so, so you know, the first thing is to select who that audience you're focused on, um, because because then the next step is to say, oh, within that audience, yeah. what are the what are the personas that that are that we want to focus on? And so, from a marketing perspective, strictly, it's like we would say, you know, we want to look at those personas that are involved in the early stages of say education and solutioning, maybe the beginning of the selection of, of, uh, of our solution. And so, you know, what are the titles, the types the personas that are out there in front, the champions, the influencers, um, you know, because those are the people that as we're, as we're going with our developing our content that will, that will kind of engage people in the early stages, that's who we should be focused on. Right. And, and, 
And therefore, you're actually kind of going through your your library or personas and you're prioritizing, you know, how much of your resources do you want to spend on these particular personas uh, and, and make sure you select the right ones that are key for the campaign. Right. OK, so so far, when you were talking about audience segments, um, I'm sensing that you were saying click through these quite quickly and you didn't want me to interrupt. You. <laughs> but the, the first, so the first, but I want to clarify a couple of things. Firstly, that when we're talking about audience segments, we're not talking about personas at this point. No. We're talking about an industry or we're talking about um, a particular cluster of need yeah. or we're talking about the people that are interested in our product. Yeah. Then we're selecting the buyer personas that are most likely to influence what it is we're trying to achieve. Right. right? So if it's a purchase or awareness or whatever, right? So there's the first two steps. What's the third? The third step would be to, to then detail the buyer needs that you want to be talking to. So, uh, right. so again, now we're, you know, th- this is, I mean, the great thing about, about these sort of parts of the process is you've done the work. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of like pulling yeah. from the library to say, okay, if I'm going to be building yeah. content and if I'm going to be figuring out what kind of campaign tactics, okay, uh, if I back to our 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 CDP example, you know, okay, for the the marketing ops leader persona, you know, okay, so they're interested yeah. in leveraging data for campaign insights. They're probably interested in doing some some detailed analysis of marketing impact. So those are things mm-hmm. that I need to be appealing to. Sales ops is going to be different because they're going to be saying, you know, I need to leverage data and analyze my pipeline or build a better mm-hmm. um, customer profile for whom from which I'm going to select accounts. So, you know, so now I've, I've taken my total addressable market. I've selected certain audiences within that addressable market that we want to campaign to, to drive, drive the most revenue. And, and then we're just saying, okay, here are the personas that we've selected that are important for us to build our content and our campaign uh, tactics. Right. And I think this also recognizes the fact that in B2B, it's a multi-person you know, an an opportunity is multiple people, and we need to be appealing to all of them, right? And so we need to be running these different cam- campaigns. So we've isolated those buyers' needs, and I I really like that concept you were saying that if you do your personas properly, you've got this library of needs, this library of content you're just pulling from. So what's the fourth? Step? The fourth one is to map uh, the solutions that are um, that you are selling to the personas' needs, and the 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 importance of this is is primarily in particularly in in uh, organizations or you know that are selling uh multiple offerings or they may have a you know when you think about the audience and the need you may have multiple uh solutions that actually address that or multiple products and when you're shifting from a uh i mean this is particularly important when you're shifting from a product focus to now more of an audience focus it's like now you got to map okay i'm so I'm 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 selling to the you know marketing ops leader. I'm selling to the sales ops leader. Um, there's this overall solution we want to talk about, or this overall need we're trying to drive to. But there are some specific things that might be that that we need to say we are going to actually, you know, that that may as we get further as I should say as the buyer gets further down the buying process, mm-hmm. that we can start slipping in. The specifics. We're no longer just trying to gauge on higher level yeah. need messaging, but we're going to say, you know, if you're trying to develop contacts, uh, you know, for your campaigns, or if you're trying to do better analytics, here are some specific, you know, whether they're you know modules or elements of our offering that are going to yeah. that we want to talk to, and 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 the other thing that's really critical is that you can say, 
you can actually do the the analysis to say here's how much revenue and in the individual products we're going to drive because if if your organization tends to be product or business unit organized you've got to make the case that your audience campaign your audience and persona focus campaign is actually going to drive revenue for the specific products but one thing i would say there i think because the way you're speaking is speaking for a multi-product a multi-module type organization right but i think this works even if it's features functions and proof points yes so if it's like the isolate the buyer's needs it is that they need to be they need a, a certain certification they need to be gdpr compliant or whatever it is that you map your features functions to that need right yep. so it doesn't it's not necessarily a whole product right just to confirm that okay so that's the fourth step so that we've now we we know who we're going after from an audience segment perspective we've got the buyer personas within that segment we've got the needs and we've mapped what we do basically against those needs, right? So what's the fifth? The fifth is determine the path to engaging the buyer. So, and again, this, this, this pulls directly from what we were summarizing about the, the behavioral attributes. So, you know, what type of content do they prefer? What do they, do they like to engage in more solution information? When do they like to talk to a person, you know, you know, in terms of the type of engagement, engagement, do they prefer in person to online long form versus short form? And, and so, we're creating you know, this is like this this really goes to the you know the the content strategy part of it it's like so what what are the different types of content we need to build that talk to these needs and what are the different types of um activation or engagement tactics we're going to use to get that content out in front of the of the buyer uh and again we're pulling from the library to to decide what we want to build but then obviously in the, in the in the campaign strategy or the content strategy it's like okay this is the amount of time and resources we're going to put towards building that and and campaigning to get the engagement we want yeah i love that i love the fact that the persona work is so foundational to all of mm-hmm. this stuff right and basically what we're doing is we're just pulling the work that we did in the persona work out uh to then design the campaign right yep. to fit exactly what they yeah. need so that's uh, that's perfect. Thank you very much. So we covered the five steps there, and we're almost in time, which is fantastic. Um, so there's the. So I mean, uh, the the conclusion there. Is that, <laughs> was, yeah. Well, yeah. The I mean, the thing. I think the thing is that that yeah. the persona we did work we did up front. Yeah. You know, it 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 yeah. works. It it sort of like as as you just said. You know, kind of like it 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 uh, influences the structure of your campaign content strategy. But the most important thing is it makes campaigning easier and more effective because you've done all the good work Splendid. up front. Splendid. A good vote for doing good persona work and not just shoving it in the drawer. Yes. So the last agenda item, um, uh, what song are we going for this week? Jeff? Well, it's from, I think actually you may have suggested this in a discussion earlier. I've uh, Howard Jones, <laughs> uh, you know, an, an artist yeah. I would not, typically have thought of top of mind but he said he'd like to get to know well it's like to get to know you well is his song i was i was thinking i'd like to get to know me well so i was like hey sure so he's you know he says i just want to reach out to to the real you inside that's that's very very 80s (laughs) classic 80s british song like to get you know get to know you well by howard jones from 1984 even I was young in 1984. <laughs> and that, again, 
it's another song that we found that predates the actual concept of personas. It does. It, by, <laughs> by 15 by years. 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Um, so that's fantastic. Thank you very much. And will you allow me back into the studio yeah. next week? After a little Thanksgiving break, we'll uh, bring you back in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, enjoy your Thanksgiving next week, mate. Oh, sounds good. And I'll see you Take then. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jeff. And that was Like to Get to Know You Well by Howard Jones from 1984. Let us know what you think and maybe suggest a topic I should pick Jeff's brain about. You can find us at Rockstar CMO on LinkedIn and Twitter or drop me an email at hello at rockstarcmo.com. Right. It's time for me to go backstage with this week's guest, Robert Jordan. He's the co-founder of Interim Execs, an elite group of top executives who are experts at growing and fixing company after company. After founding and then selling the first internet coverage magazine in the world, Online Access, Robert began taking on interim CEO gigs. Multiple company sales and IPOs followed, and in 2007, he started an online network for interim executives from around the globe, expanding to 2,300 executives from 45 countries. Robert is also a best-selling author, publishing How They Did It, Billion Dollar Insights from the Heart of America. And as you'll hear most recently, Right Leader, Right Time, Discover Your Leadership Style for a Winning Career and Company. I really enjoyed meeting Bob. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Welcome, Bob, to Rockstar CMO FM. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you very much. And where are we talking to you from today? Sweet home Chicago in the U.S. I love it. I love it. Yeah, and just as we were chatting before we got on, I spent a lot of time in Chicago. I love that city. Really nice. Um, For the listeners that, unlike me, don't know much about you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Bob Jordan, and um, Mm I'm a classic uh, entrepreneur, which is to say many uh, business failures, occasionally a couple (laughs) successes thrown into the mix. Thank God. And... um, most notably, uh, run a company called Interim Execs, which is a global matchmaker organization to call up. They need senior leadership, and we supply it if possible. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So it's a, a global organization, Interim Execs. Yes. Over the past decade or so, we've been approached mm-hmm. by about 7,000 executives from 50 countries. Wow. Uh, now, because we're located, headquartered in the U.S., you know, the way Google mm-hmm. search works, it mm-hmm. does tend to be that, that most of the organizations they're directing our way are U.S.-based, but we've done gigs in Europe and a little bit in mm-hmm. Asia and the Middle East. Right. And what sort of execs do you play? So an interim exec, I mean, I think most listeners will know what an interim exec is, but it, and, and we're a marketing show. So presumably you play CMOs, but you also do the whole gamut of executive team? Whole gamut, anything in yeah. the C-suite. We just don't work below the C-suite. Right, right, right. And what sort of organizations um, do you normally work with that need to consider an interim exec? The broad phrase everyone tends tends to use is middle market or lower middle mm-hmm. market. Mm-hmm. In different countries, that can be a slightly different band in terms of, yeah. of revenues or turnover. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go okay <laughs> here for you turnover. Um, yeah. But it, it's that where it's, that is where it tends to play. I think there could be a difference between Europe and UK and mm-hmm. the US and that our experience of American companies is they really tend to be middle market. They are not typically the Fortune 500. Right. Fortune 500 tend to have HR departments so deep and vast and succession plans that are so well formed mm-hmm. that if they did have some need, they just, that's not really where the use case is. Much yeah. more around private equity, much more around individual owners. Um, right. And I have to say, there's also a, a very large market among nonprofit organizations. Wow. And is it just, is it interim or fractional or how do you, dif- do you differentiate those two things? You could use labels like interim contract fractional project based yeah. fractional as as you're referring to tends to be longer term part time. Right. Um, and uh, interim could mean fractional, but generally yeah. everybody thinks it's going to be more intense, shorter period for the executive to go in, do the work and get out. Right. So um, what sort of organization, I mean, we're a marketing show, so what sort of organization do you tend to see that are looking for an interim CMO? So um, is, is that exactly the same, mid-market organizations looking for a quick injection of marketing experience? Our experience is that most organizations calling fit into one of four buckets and it mm-hmm. corresponds with private equity. So right. the world of private equity it generally breaks out manufacturing, business services, technology, and healthcare. Mm-hmm. And it tends to be that the that it, most successful executives in their careers tend to line up in one of those buckets. Mm-hmm. They're in manufacturing, they're in business services, they're in healthcare, and they're in tech. Right, right. So, um, and then the size of organization saying it's like mid market, and and what's usually the experience of the interim CMO when they come in? Is it are they there to do something specific, like grow a team or get a marketing team stood up, or is there what's the start and end of an interim type of engagement? So the experience, um, you know, why does an interim executive get called in or an interim yeah. CMO? Yeah. Um, about a, about a third of the time, the use cases are crisis. Uh-huh. They're disaster, they're failure. It's, it's the reason you would think somebody calls up in an emergency is because there is a problem. Right. Um, we recently had a tragic case of a very fast-growing company calling up because their CMO died. Oh, wow. Um, that is rare. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you might think on the surface, well, the seat is empty, so they call for somebody. Yeah. Yes true most of the time it's a more nuanced situation there's a situation or an issue going on right. and maybe it points to a specific role uh but maybe not but so in any case a third of the time regardless of c-suite role mm-hmm. there is a crisis two-thirds of the time the situation may be somewhat painful but it's not existential threat to the organization mm-hmm. it could be growing pains um, in a lot of cases, there's something transactional going on, which is it could be a division being spun out of a larger company. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be um, that an organization just got acquired by private equity yeah. and needs to kind of upgrade the leadership team. Right. Uh, so there are now lots of use cases. Wow. And I do have to say, you know, you're talking to a Yank. Uh, <laughs> interim originated you know, it was really more, you know, in the Netherlands. 
Right. And, um, you know, it was, it was Scandinavia first and then quickly it was UK, France, Germany, um, who had a lead in doing this by easily 10, 15 years over the U S. Wow. Do you think that's because, and this is a supplementary question. Do you think that's because of the labor laws here? That it's just, it's harder to recruit and, and, and shift talent on if, if you need to, to you know, the, the agility of the labor laws in Europe. That's or, a great question. I've asked a number of our, yeah. our European executives that true. And they say, no, you can fire in the, in yeah. the C-suite. You can fire anytime you want. Most oh, okay. of it's much harder for yeah. labor. I think some of the use cases are interestingly different. Um, when we first got started at this, well, I go back as an interim CEO by 25 years. I was one right. of the interim CEOs in the U.S. Yeah. Talking to an executive in uh, Netherlands, he said, well, you know, part of the reason this came about is that you have very few huge corporations. Mm-hmm. And if you're a manager at one of these companies and you're given a task, a project, and you view it as perhaps near to impossible, <laughs> maybe it's turnaround, it's, it's, you know, there's a crisis at some division or client, you think it's not going to work. Well, if you could bring in somebody from the outside, whatever label you give them, yeah. and they're not really going to stay there the rest of their careers anyway, they're expendable. So if they do great, fine, you can take credit. <laughs> they don't do great, fire. And I thought, well, that's an interesting point of view, but that's not a particularly American way of looking at things. A lot of companies, they're at it, you know, there are a lot of rabid managers who are like, oh my God, this is bloody, put me in. Yeah, yeah. So then that led me leads me to my next question. I'm not really sure what kind of persons are going to want to accept the mission now. But if a listener was considering a factional or interim career, what advice, obviously aside from getting in touch with you, would you give them? What sort of person are you looking for in in the interim or fractional CMO? People that uh, executives that do well making their careers here mm-hmm. already had success in a traditional corporate mm-hmm. or entrepreneurial setting. Yeah, that goes without saying in a way, but it is very important because Mm -hmm. this is not necessarily for everyone. The -hmm. first minimum bar is you have to have had a successful corporate career where you're not necessarily viewing this like I need this paycheck or I'm Mm -hmm. it it is not that kind of mindset. The Mm -hmm. mindset of successful executives here is that they're seeking challenge and they do not need the corner office anymore. Right. Right. The corner CMO office, whatever it is, yeah, yeah. they want that challenge. They want immediate impact. For right. a lot of these executives, they're coming from large organizations where, let's face it, their impact, their their ability mm-hmm. to really influence what's going on can yeah. be constrained and limited. Yeah. And so once they've had that success, they're seeking much quicker impact. Yeah. Especially, and I mean... To be a driving force for these people. Yeah, I've had a little bit of experience of, of this myself in my career. And I think especially if you're advising or working with a smaller organization from a from a marketing perspective, it's real, right? Because you're very close to every element of marketing. Whereas I think if you work for a larger organization, you tend to it's it's a big machine that you're part of. And I think for a for a for a marketer, I think that sort of role is, is really vital because you really get involved, can't you? And and your your serve your advice is so needed and, you know, you can really make a difference. I think it's really interesting. So that's, I'll, inter- one, you know, I'll tell you one key mm-hmm. thing with CMOs that, yeah. that is different from, for example, organization needs a CEO, needs a mm-hmm. CFO, needs a CIO. Yeah. 
is that, you know, a lot of earlier stage companies are now aware around the world of what it is, you know, that there's this talent and this ability that out there and they want it. Okay. Mm. Well, you can put, for example, a CFO into a fairly early stage company and on a fractional basis, they're affordable and they're going to do good work, right? They're going to upgrade. It won't just be a controller role. The CMO role, though, requires other resources for the CMO to be effective. Yeah. And so this is more addressed at company owners, which is your early stage, you want upgrade, you want a brilliant CMO. That's just great. But you better be prepared for the fact yeah. that at least most of the CMOs we know, it's not a one-person show. Yeah. It is that there are resources that are going to have to be around them. Either the organization has them and they need leadership. Yeah. Or very quickly they're going to hear from the CMO who's going to be saying who's going to be saying, you know, yeah. I'm great and I'm hands-on and you still need X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Things like in an age of social media, everything is so homegrown. And, you know, we're going to just shoot our videos on our iPhones. <laughs> and that's going to be the marketing campaign is like, yeah. just hold on a second, because there are yeah. all kinds of professionals, for example, just in looking at the social media aspect, yeah. you know, how a business is promoting itself on TikTok or Instagram yeah. or whatever that requires a team. Yeah, yeah. And but you know, I... Yeah. Yeah, I, but I've also spoken to founders who are exactly at that point that you're saying that they're understanding that they need something and they've probably, you know, sold within their network and they're looking for their next stage of of where they're going to get their pipeline from. So they're aware that they need to do some marketing, but they're not quite sure what to commit, what what resources are required, what team are required. And they need somebody senior in there to come in and just advise them on that, what you just said, the marketing ecosystem. And then, oh, now we need a CMO. Is that that your experience too? Well, I think what you're saying makes perfect sense because I'm just recalling examples of where we owners and they could have terrific business and hundreds of employees. And let's face it, a lot of owners of companies are not necessarily sophisticated about marketing. Yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, if you come from an engineering mindset, it's like we're going to build a great product and we're going to sell it. Why do we need (laughs) Who needs yeah. marketing? And oh, by the way, it's so easy on TikTok and Instagram. Yeah. You know, why is the CMO telling us it's going to cost us so much? <laughs> so, oh my God, we we could go, we could totally go down this rabbit hole. I'd, I'd love I, to I do that. But... A little bit of a shock troop on behalf of the CMO, which is to say to the yeah. owner, "Heads up, yeah. dude. Yeah, you know, th- this isn't going to be free." Yeah, yeah, but. I, I mean, to, oh man, I could totally talk to you about this for a while. But I want to get to your book because you recently published a book, Right Leader, Right Time. Discover your leadership style for a winning career and company. Good job I wrote that down. What inspired writing this book? And tell us a little bit about what you mean by right leader, right time and, and this leadership style concept. Well, thanks, Ian, for bringing it up that, you know, as I mentioned, 7,000 executives kind of showed up on our doorstep yeah. over the past decade. And you know, if that was a line outside your studio there, that's about four miles long. That's... <laughs> wow. So I should be saying six kilometers. Um, yeah. So so we we noticed this pattern, which is among the, the majority of executives, mm-hmm. their career journeys, their, their leadership experiences were okay or good, but you mm-hmm. wouldn't say they were extraordinary. Right. And if you just looked at the top three, four, five percent, Totally different story. Exceptional leaders across the C-suite. 
And it, it got painful in a way on the downside, which is that there were so many of these executives showing up who all exhibited the same problem, which I can sum up by saying, trying to be all things to all people. Right. And even if you were to confront or gently try to tell these folks, you're, you need to kind of double down on something you're great at, Mm -hmm. they would deny it. But the opposite, the flip side was that among exceptional leaders, we saw these four distinct styles of leadership that were remarkable. And we thought, well, you've got this bad case and you have this great case and boy, we should be telling the world about it. Right. So though, so you've got those sort of four leadership styles. And so are you saying the exceptional people kind of doubled down on one of those styles or were they or did were they kind of across the four pieces? And, and actually, I should ask you, what are those four leadership styles? Let's start there. Sure. The four leadership styles are fixer, artist, mm-hmm. builder and strategist. And for short, in the book, we refer to it as FABs or F-A-B-S, FABs right. leadership styles, fixer, artist, builder, strategist. Right. Um, and, and just to back to my, so is the point in the book that is that the, from a leadership style perspective, you should, you should be one of these things or is, are these four attributes that everybody, good leaders need to have, all four of them or are they particular ones? All, all leaders are a combination of the four. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yet what you tend to see is that exceptional people tend to have a dominant style mm-hmm. or a dominant yeah. and a strong secondary. Right. So let's take one of the one of the leading bleeding examples today, which is Elon Musk. <laughs> right. The yes. Greatest innovator of the modern age. I mean, seriously, mm-hmm. between Tesla and SpaceX, mm-hmm. off to the guy. He is completely you know, caused the world to think differently about electric vehicles. And he is the reason why the privatization of space, you know, that we no longer think this is just in the hands of government. Mm -hmm. God bless him. It's amazing. The same point we all are now seeing and experiencing what has occurred since he bought Twitter two weeks ago, which is that in his pure, if you, you call it fixer mode, Mm-hmm. Um, he's a a walking disaster, uh, <laughs> yes. and, and in a way, he doesn't even really care because he owns the company, so he can do anything he wants. You want to fire yes. half the staff, you know. And I think he did it for shock value more than anything yeah. else. Um, right. But Elon in fixer mode is not in any way comparable to Elon in artist mode. The right. same is true of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, you know, when he came back into Apple after he had left. He first had to save Apple. You know, mm-hmm. famously, they were 90 days away from cash running out. Yeah. And so he did do a remarkable job saving yeah. the company. But no one is ever going to remember Steve Jobs for that action as good as it was. We mm-hmm. remember for, for all of the innovation. Yeah. Yeah. So was he more of an, a builder or an artist then? Is that what you're saying? This from If we were to look at fixer, artist, builder and strategist, you'd put him more. Elon, he did a fixer job, but that wasn't his strength. No, correct. Yeah. Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Thomas Edison, they are, they're exemplars of the artist leadership style. Right. And what do you think? I mean, we I keep bringing this back to the CMO because selfishly for the show, but what do you think? Which of those um, leadership styles best suits a CMO? 
It's a great question. CMOs fit into, can fit into dominant style of any one of the four. Mm-hmm. For example, one of our executives, uh, his career has mostly been with uh, major advertising agencies around the world. And he developed an expertise going around the world to troubled divisions mm-hmm. in different companies with troubled client relationships, fixing them. Right, right. So CMO wiring, fixer, leadership right. style. Yeah. It's easy to say that CMOs, you know, have an innovative um, mindset and are creative. And that is true. But as you think of all of the people you work with in in various aspects of marketing, right? It's not the same that everyone has that same mindset. What we would say of artists is they view the world as their canvas or a piece of clay to be molded. And there are plenty of people who are successful in marketing and they do not fit that. They fit more into builder or strategist or fixer. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine um, going back to your interim um, exec uh, organization, um, I guess you probably attract more the sort of fixer and strategist to you as, as because of the nature of the engagements that you have, though, those, those are the strengths that are needed in those organizations you work with, or is that not quite? Oh, there clearly are a lot of fixer style yeah. executives and yeah. you need that to excel in crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're going into an organization and they're days away from failure, it has to be your <laughs> yeah. is like that. I will tell you that when we did the book, when we, the right leader, right time took about five years and it's a lot of interviews Mm -hmm. and we were very specifically trying to identify exceptional leaders who we thought fit the mold of fixer, builder, strategist. And there are a number of CMOs we interviewed who clearly are artist leadership Mm -hmm. style. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things, Ian, is, is that one of the questions we asked of all the leaders was what happened on your worst day. Right. And we didn't mean a, 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 a hodgepodge of, <laughs> of the worst things put together. We, we meant no, 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 no. Think of the day. Mm. What was the day that was the worst for you yeah. in leadership mode? And one of the C- CMOs that we interviewed, he said, Oh, it was the day I was ignored. Wow. Yeah. He, mm. Between client and just just the people who were who were usually paying attention to him for his he's a brilliant marketer mm-hmm. and and he said it was to be ignored wow. and that was a revelation yeah yeah amazing answer because I'll tell you for example one of the strategists we interviewed was the former head of Alberto Culver you know hairspray food yeah, products yeah, yeah. world and we asked her what was your worst day. Yeah. And she said, oh, it was the day the plant blew up. They yeah. they used a plant in Mexico yeah. for hairspray, yeah. it blew up, and four workers died. Oh, wow. And they weren't even the owner of the plant, but Alberto Culver felt such responsibility for what had happened yeah. that searing memory. So it's just interesting. Yeah, yeah. Based on how someone is wired, how they view their best day, their worst day. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, um, I haven't, I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't read your book yet because we've only just met, but I'll definitely have a look at that. I'm really interested in that. And uh, listeners will know that I'm a big fan of, of any kind of book. I'm always reading the books. Um, so, and your book is Right Leader, Right Time, Discover Your Leadership Style for a Winning Career and Company. 
Um, so I'm going to roll on to our final question because we've completely run out of time. You're fascinating, Bob. Um, we have a regular feature, the Rockstar CMO Simple, our portal to marketing hell, where we throw all the bullshit snake oil and overhyped trends that plague this industry we love. What would you chuck in there? So I, I want to give you some kind of answer you don't get from everyone else. <laughs> I want to say it's almost a form of marketing that the world comes to believe we're going into a recession. Now, I know it depends what country you're in, but in some ways, economics is simply the study of mass psychology. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting if you hear how many people are now talking about the fact that, oh, we're in a recession or we're going into a recession. Yeah. I just find it interesting, these cycles, how it almost becomes a form of self-marketing yeah. or marketing to other people, which is, this is the way I'm now going to behave because yeah. this is, my, this is yeah. my response to everyone else getting scared about what's going on around yeah. me. I think that's great because it also answer that, that you're going to get about a campaign, but no, I like that. I like that because that says something about where marketing sits in the culture, right? That we inform the culture sometimes. So the media picks up on it and suddenly, I mean, I know there is a financial element to being in a recession, but we still create these moments and the, this language of the culture, right? So I think that's well, really interesting. And, and every CMO listening to this should care yeah. because yeah. what is the first victim for most corporations? Yes. Yeah. is oh, we better cut advertising <laughs> yeah yeah which is like that is that is such a bygone answer yeah. you know in prior generations when marketing was a blunt tool right mm -hmm. you could run on television you could run on newspapers but now yeah. it can be the most targeted thing in the world yeah. and so if you have a management team where that is their first response yeah um boy that's antiquated absolutely and i i am um... You know, you'd hope that people would subscribe to the view that marketing is actually an investment. You know, that old, that, that old, the, the fact it's a cost center, it isn't, it's an, it's an investment. So, yes, uh, again, another topic, Bob, I think we could cover for 20 minutes on its own. Um, but anyway, I've got to wrap up. Um, but when people spin the dial on the interwebs, where are they going to find you? Thanks, Ian. I can be reached at interimexecs.com. Excellent. And are you on LinkedIn, Twitter and all those places as well? All those usual suspects, yes. Excellent. All right. And as a reminder, your book is Right Leader, Right Time, Discover Your Leadership Style for a Winning Career and Company. And you're from Interim Execs. Thank you very much for your time, Bob. I really enjoyed our conversation. Hope to speak to you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bob. Something a little bit different there. Not our usual marketing guest, but I thought the topic of leadership was something worth digging into. Hope you like that conversation. And I will, of course, include all of his links, including to his book, Right Leader, Right Time, in the show notes, which you can find at rockstarcmo.com. Right, it's that time of the week to wind down in the Rockstar CMO virtual bar and be transported away for a cocktail and a marketing thought with my friend and content marketing guru, Robert Rose. Good evening, Robert. What are you drinking? Oh, hello, my friend. I, wow. Okay. <laughs> I knew you were a fan of Star Wars, but I did not know that you had a complete replica of the Death Star. Complete with the Imperial March, I'd say. I, holy. Oh, there's, there's stormtroopers fighting. There's. Oh, wow. I knew you were a fan, but I did not know that you had completely redecorated the bar. With all of this Star Wars stuff, it's, it's truly it's, amazing. We're rehearsing for May the Fourth night, which is our normal Star Wars night. But uh, yeah, so I thought November bring a bit of 
um, holiday cheer with Star Wars night in the bar. Yes, yes. <laughs> I've just completed, by the way, the uh, the Andor series, which was which was just uh-huh. remarkable, just a which remarkable. Are, so oh, that which delightful. is the one? Yes, uh, yeah. And which of the which of the streaming services is that one on? That would be uh, where they all are is on uh, Disney. Disney Plus. Yeah, yes. yeah. Because I've, I must admit, I've only just subscribed to Disney Plus, so I need to start off. I want to start on the Mandalorian and start working my way through because I was resisting because I basically subscribed to everything. Yeah, <laughs> well, you wouldn't know it from the decoration. You've you've gotten the decorations <laughs> and the noise of Star Wars really, really Huge down fans. here. It's just remarkable. <laughs> able to do with this virtual bar. <laughs> Yeah. I'm um, looking forward to spending my Saturday morning trying to find these sound effects. So, yeah, yeah, I think you'll, I, I think you'll find, and not running afoul of any copyright laws in the. In I've, I, I, uh, I kissed that goal goodbye a long time ago on this podcast. <laughs> so, so, I think what I'll need to do is just like separate myself from this podcast, so when the lawyers do come calling, and I can just collapse <laughs> well you could just you, hey look you can just put it on twitter and tell you elon said it was okay yeah right, that's, exactly yeah it's fair use yeah fair and comedy it's a parody account right? just, <laughs> yeah parody yeah. comedy yeah there, but it's there's true. also i think there's a serious element because i was talking to your um colleague kathy uh, mcknight about her podcast and she plays a little bit of music that her guests recommend similar to what i do and then i said well kathy have you ever seen um uh, TikTok, <laughs> people, people are ripping off other people's, um, you know, sharing other people's songs all the time. So uh, I don't know. Uh, it's a different. Yeah. Conversation. Well, I, I was quickly, uh, I was, I was quickly remediated of that when I had mm-hmm. like four or five. I used to do that too. I yeah. used to have a nice transition, literally ten or fifteen seconds of some yeah. pop song because I loved the, the train, yeah. loved to use it as a transition, and then I had like. Yeah four or five of my episodes like summarily removed um wow. and i was like oh okay i need to stop doing that yeah um, what were you removed from youtube Maybe that's what oh really that might be. yeah oh, it, was on, it was a video show that i did on youtube and, right. and basically yeah. i had included as a transition piece of music you know because it was always fun to sort of yeah. tie the theme of the show which was a yeah. sort of you know, some sort of marketing thing to a yeah. uh a pop song yeah. Um, and I loved weighing in the lyrics and then I would use that, you know, whatever snippet mm-hmm. that lyric came from as sort of the transition from that little bit of the show to the next bit of the show. Yeah. Um, and I loved editing it in. It was, it was so much fun. Yeah. Um, and it was literally, I would never use more than like 10 or 15 seconds. Doesn't matter. You can't use any of it. Right. And no. as soon as the <laughs> algorithm picks it up, they don't go, yeah, sorry. No, you don't get some of it. You don't get all of it. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, well, the they pull all your audio down. Well, the interesting thing is, is um, I've I have songs on this show, and I uploaded uh, one to YouTube, and it went through the check, and I thought, oh, I'm going to get dinged on this, but then they were like, they were fine with it because they just put their ads against it. I think because you know, like, I, 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 if I think if they've got the if they've got the song that they already play it on YouTube, or so, I don't know, I don't know how I managed to skate through, but I did it once. It works I, until somebody complains, basically. Oh, really? Oh, well. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is, is. Uh, I have very nice listeners, and none of them complain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See what happens. <laughs> maybe, maybe your audience isn't big enough to complain. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm sure. I'm sure one of the three of them will now complain. Now we've goaded them into it. <laughs> there is that. Yes, well, we no, have there a is. Nice drink. We have a very simple oh, drink for yes, tonight in the bar. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yes. It is just a plain old tequila, and uh, I was I was reunited with one of my favorites, um, which sadly is really only for special occasions because it is very pricey. Yeah. Um, and it is the uh, the 1942 by uh, uh, Anejo uh, by mm-hmm. Don Julio. Um, and so it's called the 1942 tequila and it comes in a beautiful bottle and all of that. So by the way, yeah. if anyone's thinking about Christmas gifts for <laughs> your lovely neighborhood virtual bartender, uh, a 1942 tequila by Don Julio would be a lovely Christmas gift. Uh, also, if Don Julio is, is listening, uh, a case of it would be like most yes. appreciated. Yeah. Um, I will be your influencer. I will be your Kanye. Um, you know what I do if I were you? I, I would. <laughs> I would mention that on the podcast that you're on that has actually more listeners. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So we're just going to do that. We're going to do a 1942 tequila nice. uh, on one big right. rock, straight one up, big rock. nothing in it besides that, and just sip on those. All right. Well, I'm going to attempt to make that very complicated cocktail with the, only the ingredients on my desktop bar. So I'm going to start off with the uh, most English of tequilas. <laughs> That we've decided, and that'll be gin, Hendrix gin in this case, which is actually Scottish. And um, you didn't put anything in there apart from a large rock, right? Just one big rock, yeah. Wow, wow. Well, then uh, it doesn't in give fact, me any of Star Wars. I have the coolest of these. I was given a gift where I have uh, the, these ice molds that make the big, you know, spheres. Ooh. And somebody gave me one that's the Death Star. So I make these Death Star oh, nice. large. Rocks. Wow. Really cool. So let's imagine yeah. there's a huge tequila with a big Death Star in it. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Mine, um, not so much. <laughs> so, much. anyway, so. No, I can't imagine, yes. <laughs> so, I, I well, no, Yours is coming out from that very English of ice trays, <laughs> cubes, from a bucket. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, uh, I just, while nobody was listening, I just slid in some, uh, some tonic water into my, um, into my most English of tequilas. I'm going to give this a try. There you go. Mmm. That's delicious, Robert. I could drink one of these every week. And what are we calling I that? I suspect you might, yes. Well, and you'll save lots of money, too, by not actually uh, <laughs> replacing it with the actual proper tequila. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a tequila 1942 Anejo. And um, if people get in touch with me, I can tell them where to send it to. <laughs> yeah, please. Please do. I will take as much as they will give me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. And where will we? Another sophisticated, expensive drink, same as last week. So, where are we going to be drinking this? It's fancy. I think we need to go down. So, there is a a little place, um, you know, down south of Los Angeles, and it's Mm -hmm. a town called San Diego. Yes. And there is uh, a suburb of San Diego just north of the city on the beach, which is just absolutely spectacular. Some of the best beachside. Um, there's numbers of little towns down there, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's lots of little places to, to, uh, ensconce ourselves, um, and find ourselves on a beachside, uh, little, you know, whether it's a little bar or a little restaurant, but, you know, mm-hmm. it, the weather is spectacular. We'll watch the sunset, um, and then go for some great Mexican food just down the road in one of those little towns, you know, yeah. street tacos and, and yeah. all sorts of things. And it'll be a, a lovely way to spend an evening. That'll, 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 um, that'll work out on the per diem. So we've got the most expensive tequila, but the cheapest food we can find. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the best way to do it. Is, I'm not kidding. That's, that's one of my favorite things to do is drink the highest value, <laughs> biggest, wonderful tequila and then go eat street tacos. I mean, it's nice. just, oh, 
it's, that is that is good eating right there, I'll tell you. Yeah, and a lovely part of the world as well, San Diego. So um, when uh, we're we're tucking into this, this this fine food and this wonderful drink, what will we be talking about, Robert? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about SEO, um, and you know, and what I want to. So a couple of things have come up over the last couple of weeks with this that I thought were dead and are not now dead. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's fascinating to me because so one of the things that was often the original sort of business case of a content marketing program, you know, whether it was mm-hmm. a blog or your resource center or putting a section on your website that was articles was about SEO, right? So mm-hmm. it was all about being found. Yeah. And the challenge with it, with it was that you were always chasing the traffic. Yeah. Um, there's this inherent pressure when you make your foundation for your content marketing program, uh, one based on being found in search, that you're always creating content designed to rank rather than content intended to actually lead your industry mm-hmm. or entertain yeah. or inform or in some way be differentiated, right? So in other words, you're trying to be found. so talking about value that's outside of you is really difficult because your whole point is to be found for you. So you Mm. end up talking a lot about you. Um, (laughs) And you can see that in so many blogs where it's all about how to use us, what we're all about, you know, enough about you. Let's talk about me. Um, And that has become, there's inarguably that has become more difficult uh, over the last decade, the quality Mm -hmm. of competition, your quantity of content, the growth of paid search, what's happening with Google most recently. Um, basically, the real estate on the first page of Google is, you know, it's prime real estate, more expensive, more challenging to get to than ever before. Um, and really, it's first page or bust, right? You know, yeah. as yeah, yeah. my SEO expert and friend, Arnie Keen, used to say, you know, the best place to hide a dead body is the second page of Google results. <laughs> But recently, I have actually heard from two clients that that SEO first mentality still exists in building their case for a new content marketing platform. And so these clients were ex- both expressing frustration because they were asking their digital agency to help them identify a business case to bring this content marketing program to life. And, and in both cases, the consultants came back with, you know, a 30 slide PowerPoint, uh, mm-hmm. that basically said, look, your audience searches Google X amount of times. Here's the most popular search terms. New slide. Here's what they're finding. New slide. Here's the terms they search for that you care most mm-hmm. about. Here's the gap. In other words, here's what they're not finding when they search. So conclusion A on slide, you know, 24 or 25, yeah. uh, the number of searches you care about is limited. And conclusion B, the number of answers for the terms that you care about that your audience isn't finding is also low. In other words, with both conclusion A and B, this is going to be hard. Right. It's going to be hard to compete, but you should. And the recommendation, of course, by the agency is then to focus short term on creating lots of content about the terms you care about, uh, but your audience isn't finding and focus long term on competing for the highly sought after keywords. Put simply game on. Let's start creating a lot of content that ranks. The last yeah. slide, of course, as it always is, is we can help you do that. We can help you do that <laughs> with creating high quality content that will compete mm-hmm. now. I want to be clear here, not denigrating the good work that SEO firms do. That's the good work that SEO firms do is way above my pay grade and, and mm-hmm. they do stuff that, you know, is akin to magic to me. I mean, some of the sophistication yeah. behind that stuff. But 
What those slide decks from those, you know, freelancers or agencies illustrate to me is this argument for launching a modern content marketing platform. And there's two problems with it, right? One, SEO has arguably never been a good foundation for a content marketing platform. But two, and more importantly, is the changes that have happened most recently in web search fundamentally changes the way that the content marketing equation works these days. So from lesson one, what we can learn is that, look, trying to figure out popularity of search terms and mm -hmm. chasing that traffic is impossible. You're just not going to do it. It's like the, the metaphor I often use is like trying to use Google to, you know, form the foundation of content marketing is kind of like sitting on a freeway overpass to try to understand what car you should buy, right? <laughs> you count yeah. the number of times you see the green BMW, but you've got yeah. no idea about the value of any one of those cars or who's in it. Yeah. And you just can't know the social or emotional context of your audience needs by watching Google and mm -hmm. looking at search velocity. Because for example, today you go look at search volume velocity and you may go, wow, there's a lot of search volume around that. That's a huge audience out there that we could reach. Yeah. However, yeah. it may also indicate that the audience right now is finding it so difficult to find anything of value that it's not popularity, it's frustration, the reason there's so much right. searching for this. And so right. you're mistaking popularity for frustration in finding it. But the flip side is also true. You look at low search volume and you go, eh, that's not worth pursuing because it's not popular. Mm. But you may be just on the very cusp of something really big. Yeah, yeah. The, the example I use all the time of that is if in 2009, Joe Polizzi and I had yeah. decided, you know what? Nobody's really searching for content marketing. It's yeah. not a really popular term. We might have decided against using it yeah. and we would have missed the astronomical uh, exponential rise in popularity of content marketing over the next few years. And yeah. because we based it on what we were passionate about rather than what was ranking, it was a different and better search term for us. Yeah. And we see the results of this so many times where I see SEO teams and content teams feeding their content marketing platforms and they always feel like they're chasing their tail. By the time they spend mm -hmm. the 12 months trying to rank for keywords that are possible or that are popular, well, 12 months from now, those terms aren't popular anymore. And so you're, yeah, yeah. it's rinse and repeat trying to, you know, paint the bridge that is never done painting. Yeah. And the second rule of what's changing these days, and this is even more important, mm -hmm. is just reading an article, uh, on Search Engine Journal, um, last week that talked about this idea that 30% of us now are finding Google increasingly useless. Um, in other words, ah. we're putting in multiple search queries for the same thing to try and filter down something that's valuable to us. We're becoming more and more frustrated with search the results that Google provides. Now, here's the thing. The search engine journal, I think, makes the wrong conclusion. They I, conclude because they use this example for, for you know, in, in there where they say you go search for calories in a bottle of wine. And what you get yeah. is sort of Google now surfacing up the answer to that question like they want to do. And what they're telling you is that there's 123 calories in a glass of wine. Yeah. And their conclusion was, see, Google is wrong. They don't even know what question I'm asking. Yeah. And what I would posit is, is that that's the slightly wrong conclusion. What it is, is that it's Google trying to get smarter, not dumber. In yeah. other words, 
it knows that you don't really want to know the calories of a bottle of wine. <laughs> so what it's doing is inferring what you really want to know because of the amount of data that it has on general users is you yeah. really want to know the glass of wine. So it's basically telling you you're not looking for what you think you're looking for. Yeah. You need this answer, which is what you're really looking for. And we're trying to serve it up before you even know you know it. Yeah. And of course, that's the heart of what's now being called content discovery, right? Mm -hmm. Content recommendations. And we're trying to do it as marketers too. Think of all the efforts that we're doing to personalization and targeted mm -hmm. content, basically helping the customer understand what it is they're looking for before they even know they're looking for it. Yeah. And so yeah. that becomes an even bigger reason to not start with SEO, yeah. to not start with search findability yeah. as the reason that we're putting together a content marketing program because the goal today is to start to lead people to the answers that they don't even know that they need yet. Yeah. That yeah. will be the winning content in the future is being able to deliver content that is resonant and become, you know, kind of almost like TikTok in a way mm -hmm. where visitors to our website or our app or our resource center are learning things that they, you know, that they need to know rather than what they're asking to know. And it, yeah. that's the, that's a yeah. real change. And I think we need to start thinking about it in our content marketing program. I like and also the way you describe it there is why, I mean, especially with your example of content marketing, I remember actually back in the day that tracking some of that stuff, because there were a few terms that were floating around like persuasive content, for example, which I grabbed the URL of. We, the, we weren't sure which was going to be the dominant one uh, back then. And, um, and and what's interesting there is is why would you go to the machine to find out what the people want? Why not go to the people and find out what the people want, and then you That's form right. your tribe, right? Is as I've know, as I've said many times, you should know more about your audience than Google does, and if you yeah, don't, exactly. then then yeah. shame on you. Yeah, and and you and it, it's a it's, you know, are are you know what can you in, can you infer what what people want from what they're searching for because they can't find it. You know, it's just you know, like you say, you know, you, you're forming your tribe around your terms and your tribe are going to know those terms. You know, those terms use those rather than what Google is telling you. People are searching. That's right. For. I mean, it's one data point for sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. In your, yeah, yeah. in your research to what your audience, yeah. what your customer wants, looking yeah. at what they're searching for is definitely one data yeah, point, yeah. but yeah. you know, it's, but it's that, that big a, I was going to say that basically is, you know, but following only that one data point yeah. sort of puts you into a vicious cycle, right? So yeah. you, you know, this is the trouble I have with sort of always surfacing the most popular content. Mm. You know, when, when we, on our blogs or uh, mm. on our websites, when we say, you know, when, when we start suggesting that mm. which has the most traffic as the most interesting yeah. content, right? Conflating the idea of interesting with popularity. Yeah. And it, you know, in many cases, the most popular page on our site is the one that our either our competitors are pointing out as ridiculous, you know, <laughs> or yeah. that quite honestly is only ranking because it's ranking for some false yeah. search. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I've got, you know, I'll, 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 here's a funny example of that. One of my posts on content advisory mm -hmm. ranks really high in the sense of if you search for, uh, I think it's Raymond Chandler and gun. Right. Wow. Because I use that metaphor yeah. once in a marketing yeah. thing. I said, you know, it's like yeah. Raymond Chandler's, you know, novel and a guy for yeah. whatever reason that yeah. 
if you Google, and I, I'm, I may be getting the search term a little bit wrong, but not a lot. Yeah. It's like literally if you search like Raymond Chandler and gun, my blog yeah. post comes up like two or three on the first page of Google. Wow. And yeah. of course, anybody clicking on that doesn't want what I'm about to <laughs> Yeah. But if you were to yeah. look at it in my most popular, like if I use Google as yeah. the right rail automated yeah. of my most popular articles, yeah. that one would go to the top because it gets yeah. the most traffic. But it's the traffic that it's getting is useless. useless. Yeah. And it's the high bounce, I imagine, as well. I mean, oh, it's a oh, huge fuck. bounce rate, right? <laughs> yeah. It's 95%. Yeah. I, I always wonder who the 5% who aren't bouncing from that are. Um, there must be a Venn know. diagram of people that are interested in Ray Chandra and right. Gun and content marketing. <laughs> you you found your sweet spot there. All right, that's fair. And you just mentioned uh, your, your, uh, your little hovel, as you describe it, on the, on the web, which is... ContentAdvisory.net. Well, it's right? ContentAdvisory.net is my little hobble yeah. on the yes. web and where we post many, many things. And, and many, and many things that don't rank for search, by the way. <laughs> what I was also going to mention is um, because you talk about some of this stuff a little bit on your B2B special you did on your own podcast, This Old Marketing, last week with Joe Polizzi. And I think you, you mentioned some of the some of the stuff around B2B content, which I think was relevant to the topic you discussed today. So I thought I'd mention that. And when people spin the dial on the interwebs, where are they going to find you? Well, they're going to find me these days hanging out a lot on LinkedIn because I'm sort oh. of watching <laughs> Twitter from the cheap seats, uh, trying to figure out what the heck's going to happen with uh, with this little platform. Well, yeah, and as we record this a few days in advance, by the time this goes live on Saturday, I'm wondering it might all be on fire. <laughs> oh, it, or, or might have been burned down by now. Yeah, I mean, never, yeah. you know. We may be, we may be, you know, we may be late to this news. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then if we are late to this news, uh, can we look back at it in the bar next week? Well, of course we can. Yes. And I'm hopeful for a little of the, you know, cantina music and a little, you know, <laughs> I love this. I'm loving this Star Wars theme that you got going on here. <laughs> All right, mate. I'll see you later. Thank you, Robert. Wise words. And I have no idea what Robert will spring on me as to what will be happening in the bar. But if I'm not here next week, you know the copyright lawyers came knocking. So that's a wrap on episode 141 of the Rockstar CMO Effing Martin podcast. Thanks to Jeff, Bob and Robert for sharing their insight. But most of all, thank you for dropping a dime into your podcasting jukebox, selecting our track and jiving along with us. What do you think? Does the world need another effing marketing podcast? Let us know on the socials or please drop a rating or review in your favourite podcast app or just keep listening. I'm glad you're here. Next week, Jeff will be back in the studio. I chat with one of Jeff's old Forrester colleagues, Alyssa Grucock, and Robert will be back in our virtual bar. Until then, have a great week and I hope you again join us next week here on Rockstar CMO. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.